Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stamel Major. In this episode, we're continuing the Bombard story by Dr. Alain Bombard, translated by Brian Connell, and we're on chapter 12. Chapter 12, Mid Passage. Land, land, is the cry of the castaway when he sights the first coast. My cry on the 11th of November was, rain, rain. I had noticed for some time that the surface of the sea had become strangely calm, exactly as if it were sleeked down with oil. And suddenly I realized why. Rain, here comes the rain, I cried aloud. I stripped ready for it so that I could wash all the salt off my body and then sat down on one of the floats. I stretched out the tent on my knees and held between my legs an inflatable rubber mattress capable of holding some 15 gallons of water. I waited. Like the sound of a soda siphon monstrously magnified, I heard advancing from far away the noise of water beating on water. I must have waited nearly 20 minutes watching the slow approach of this manna from heaven. The waves were flattened under the weight of the rain and the wind buffeted me as the squall hit the boat. The cloud passed over slowly, writhing with the vertical turbulence of a small cyclone. I was drenched in a tropical downpour which rapidly filled the tent sheet and made it sag with the weight between my knees. I plunged my head in it and as quickly spat the water out again. It was impregnated with salt from the tent and I let it all spill overboard. At the second fill, although the water tasted strongly of rubber, it was like nectar. I washed myself voluptuously. The squall did not last long, but the rainfall was tremendous. Not only did I drink my fill that day, but I was able to store three or four gallons in my rubber mattress. I was going to have a gurgling pillow, but each night my reserve of water was going to renew my hopes for the next day. Even if I had nothing to eat, even if I caught no fish, I at least had something to drink. For three weeks, I had not had a drop of fresh water, only the liquid I pressed from my fish. But my reactions were perfectly normal, just the marvellous sensation of swallowing a real drink at last. My skin was still in good order, although much affected by the salt. My mucous membranes had not dried, and my urine had remained normal in quantity, smell and colour. I had proved conclusively that a castaway could live for three weeks and even longer because I could have continued perfectly well without fresh water. It is true that Providence was to spare me the ordeal of having to rely again on the flat, insipid fish juice. From that day on, I always had enough rainwater to slake my thirst. It sometimes seemed as if my stock was about to run out, but a shower always came in time. I found that it was impossible to wash the salt out of my clothes and bedding, and I had to remain until the end a man of salt water, as the Polynesians say of people who live off the sea, completely encrusted with it until the day of my arrival. The day of the rain brought me both pleasure and perturbation. The pleasure consisted in a new sort of bird, an attractive creature called, in English, I believe, a white-tailed tropic bird, and which the French call pale cool. It looks like a white dove with a black beak and has a long quill in its tail which, with an impertinent air, it uses as an elevator. I rummaged quickly for my raft book, written for the use of castaways, and read that the appearance of this bird did not necessarily mean that one was near land, but as it could only come from the American continent, being completely unknown in the old world, 
it was a good sign. For the first time, I had met a bird which came, without a shadow of a doubt, from my destination. This pleasant interlude was succeeded at about two o'clock in the afternoon by twelve hours of terror, which lasted until two the next morning. Just as I was peacefully reading a little Aesius, there was a violent blow on the rudder. That's another shark, I thought, and looked up. What I saw was a large swordfish of undeniably menacing aspect. He was following the dinghy at a distance of about twenty feet, seemingly in a rage, his dorsal fin raised like hackles. In one of his feints round the boat, he had collided with my rudder oar. I found I had a determined enemy. If I only succeeded in wounding him, he would surely attack again, and that would be the end of the heretic. What was worse, as I was hurriedly getting my harpoon ready, a clumsy movement knocked it into the sea. It was my last one. Now I was disarmed. I fixed my pocket knife onto my underwater gun as a makeshift bayonet, determined to sell my life dearly if he attacked in earnest. This intolerable anxiety lasted twelve long hours. As night fell, I could follow the swordfish's movements by his luminous wake and the noise his dorsal fin made cutting the water. Several times his back bumped the underside of the dinghy, but he still seemed a little afraid of me. He never approached from ahead, and every time he came at me he changed course at the last moment before striking the floats. I came to believe that he was frightened, probably as frightened as I was. Every living creature possesses some means of defence, but it must perturb an attacker not to know what it is. In the early hours of the morning, his wake disappeared, but I spent a sleepless night. One of the lulls in this encounter brought a minor relief, which I interpreted as a message from the land. It was one of those little glass floats used on fishing nets, encrusted with little fish shell, cirripedia, and other sorts of barnacle. It had clearly been in the water a long time, but it was a sign of human life. It was an exhausting day, and by the time it was over, I was utterly miserable. It rained so hard during the night that I thought I was going to have too much fresh water, after having gone without it for so long, I wrote, it would really be too much if I drowned in fresh water, but that is what is going to happen if this downpour goes on. I have had enough for a month. My God, what a cloudburst. What is more, the sea is rising. A pale sun poked through this morning, but it is still raining. Another excitement was what I took to be my first clump of sargasso seaweed. In fact, it was a magnificent jellyfish. The float, blue and violet, of the type known as Portuguese man-of-war. Its long, treacherous filaments, hanging to a considerable depth, can cause dangerous stings which often develop into ulcers. I realised after one or two wakeful nights how essential it was to get a good sleep. 48 hours without sleep and I am utterly depressed. The ordeal is really beginning to get me down. Moreover, the sea is infested with tunny and swordfish. I can see them leaping all round me. I do not mind the tunny and the birds so much, but the swordfish are a real menace. I'm making good speed, but would willingly add another five or six days to the voyage if I could rest up in comparative calm. This dark, forbidding sea has a depressing effect. It really seemed as if the sea was in mourning. It was as black as ink, flecked from time to time by a white crest, which the plankton made luminous by night. 
It looked like an evening dress with occasional white flowers or a Japanese morning robe. Not a star to be seen, and the low sky seemed about to crush me. I realised the full meaning of the term heavy weather. It felt like a physical weight on my shoulders. At five o'clock on the 12th of November, I noted rain and yet more rain. This is more than I can stand. But I wonder if I am not nearer the coast than I think, as there are several more birds. There are 10 round me at the same time, and my bird book says that more than six mean that one is not more than 100 or 200 miles from the coast. Little did I think that I was only just over 100 miles away from the Cape Verde Islands. During the night of the 12th and 13th of November, I had another visit from a shark, or at least so I hoped. There was no way of telling whether it was a shark or a swordfish. Every time a shark appeared during the day, I felt perfectly safe. I gave it the ritual clout on the nose and off it went. But during the night, fearing that one of those devilish creatures might spear me with his sword, I was no longer able to be so bold. I had to remain watchfully awake, trying to identify the intruder, and waiting wide-eyed for it to make off. Sleep was effectively banished. And often it seemed that sharks or other creatures were playing some sort of ball game during the night with my dinghy, without my daring to interfere. It was still raining in torrents. Under such a deluge, I was obliged to stretch the tent right over my head, but it formed great pockets of water which trickled down through the gaps. After a certain time, the weight threatened to break the guy ropes and I had to push from underneath to spill the water overboard. It must be difficult to realise the sacrifice involved for a castaway in thus jettisoning his reserve of fresh water. Even without sharks and swordfish, sleep had become practically impossible. The rain thundered down and every quarter of an hour or so I had to heave it overboard. An unbelievable quantity of water fell on the tent and trickled through every crevice. I began also to believe in a confused sort of way in the active hostility of certain inanimate objects. I might decide to write up the log or work out some calculation. I would sit down with a pencil ready at hand, and I only needed to turn around for ten seconds, and that pencil found some means of disappearing. It was like a mild form of persecution mania, although up till then I had always been able to meet such annoyances with good humour, thinking of the similar misfortunes suffered by the three men in a boat. Friday, the 14th of November. The last 48 hours had been the worst of the voyage. I am covered with little spots and my tongue is coated. I do not like the look of things at all. The storm has been short and violent. Was obliged to put out the sea anchor for several hours, but hoisted sail again at about 9.30. Raining in sheets and everything soaked through. Morale still fairly good, but I am starting to get physically tired of the perpetual wetness, which there is no sun to dry. I do not think I have lost a great deal of time, but it's impossible to determine my latitude, as I can neither see sun nor stars, and another of these confounded rainstorms is blowing up from the horizon. The sea is calmer, but yesterday I shipped plenty. They say fine weather follows rain. I can hardly wait for it. During the night, a tremendous wave catching me by the stern, carried me along at great speed and then flooded the heretic, at the same time breaking my rudder oar. The dinghy immediately turned broadside on and my sail started to flap in a sinister manner, straining at my rough stitching. I plunged forward to gather it in, but stumbled against the tent 
and tore a great rent near the top of one of the poles. There would be no way of mending it properly, and it happened just as I had to battle for life with the waves. I threw out both my sea anchors. Docilely, the heretic turned her stern to my normal course and faced up to her assailants. By this time, I was at the end of my strength, and accepting all the risks, I decided that sleep was the first necessity. I fastened up the tent as close as I could and made up my mind to sleep for 24 hours, whatever the weather did and whatever happened. The squalls continued for another 10 hours, during which my eggshell craft behaved admirably, but the danger was not yet past. The worst moments came after the wind had dropped while the sea continued to rage. The wind seemed to enforce a sort of discipline on the sea, propelling the waves without giving them time to break. Left to themselves, they were much less disciplined. They broke with all their force in every direction, overwhelming everything in their path. Saturday, 15th of November, 1330. Taking advantage of the rain to do a little writing. Have only two rudder oars left. Hope they will hold out. Rain has been coming down in torrents since 10 o'clock yesterday evening. No sign of the sun and wet through. Everything is soaked and I have no means of drying a thing. My sleeping bag looks like a wet sack. No hope of taking my position. The weather was so bad during the night that I wondered for a time if I had not drifted into the doldrums. Fortunately, there is no doubt that the trade wind is still with me, making good time, almost too fast for comfort, still worried about the sail. When will the weather clear up? There was one patch of blue sky in the west, but the wind is from the east. Perhaps tomorrow will be better, but I am going to have another thick night of it. About seven o'clock this morning, an aircraft flew over me quite low. Tried to signal it, but my torch would not work. First sign of human life since the 3rd of November. Hope there will be more. Sky to the west now, clearing rapidly. Difficult to understand why. There was a sort of battle in the sky the whole day between the two fronts of good and bad weather. I called it the fight between the blue and the black. It started with the appearance in the west of a little patch of blue, no bigger than a gendarme's cap, as the French song has it, and there seemed little hope of it growing. The black clouds, impenetrable as ink, seemed fully conscious of their power, and marched in serried ranks to attack the tiny blue intruder. But the blue patch seemed to call up reinforcements on its wings, and in a few hours to the south and north, that is to say, to my left and right, several more blue patches had appeared, all seemingly about to be engulfed in the great black flood advancing towards them. But where the clouds concentrated on frontal attacks, the blue of the sky used infiltration tactics, breaking up the mass of black, until the good weather predominated. By four o'clock in the afternoon, its victory was clear. Thank God for the sun. I am covered with little spots, but the sun is back. Little did I know that the most troublesome part of my voyage was about to begin. I had not the faintest idea where I was. With no sun for three days, I was in a state of complete ignorance, and on Sunday the 16th, when I got my sextant ready, I was in a fever of apprehension. By a miracle, I had not drifted much to the south. I was still on latitude 16 degrees 59 minutes north, which passes to the north of Guadeloupe. That vital point was settled, but my boat looked like a battlefield. My hat had blown off in the storm, and all I now had as protection for my head was a little white floppy thing made out of waterproof linen, quite inadequate in such a climate. 
The tent was torn in two places, and although the dinghy seemed to have suffered no damage, everything in it was drenched. Even after the long sunny days which were now to come, the night dew continued to re-impregnate my warm clothes and sleeping bag, so that I was never again to know a dry night until I touched land. A disturbing instant then showed that I could not afford to relax my vigilance for one moment. During the storm, I had tried to protect the afterpart of the heretic from the breaking waves by trailing a large piece of rubberized cloth fixed firmly to the ends of my two floats. This seemed to divert the force of the waves as they broke behind me. Even though the storm had died down, I saw no point in removing this protection. But the following night, a frightful noise brought me out of my sleeping bag in one bound. My protective tail was no longer there. The piece of cloth had been torn away. I checked anxiously that the floats had not been damaged and that they were still firmly inflated. Some creature which I never saw, probably attracted by the vivid yellow colour of the cloth which hung down between the floats, had torn it off by jumping out of the water. This it had done with some precision in that there was no other visible sign of its attack. Like the boat, I too had taken a buffeting. I was much weakened and every movement made me terribly tired, rather like the period after my long fast in the Mediterranean. I was much thinner, but was more worried about the state of my skin. My whole body was covered with tiny red spots. At first they were little more than surface discolorations, not perceptible to the touch, but in a day or two they became hard lumps that finally developed into pustules. I was mortally afraid of a bad attack of boils, which, in the condition I was in, would have had serious consequences. The pain alone would have proved unbearable, and I would no longer have been able to sit or lie down. The only medication I had to treat such an outbreak was mercurochrome, which made me look as if I was covered in blood. During the night, the pain became very bad, and I could not bear anything in contact with my skin. The least little abrasion seemed to turn septic, and I had to disinfect them all very carefully. The skin under my nails was all inflamed and small pockets of pus, very painful, formed under half of them. I had to lance them without an anaesthetic. I could probably have used some of the penicillin I had on board, but I wanted to keep up my medical observations with a minimum of treatment for as long as I could stand it. My feet were peeling in great strips, and in three days I had lost the nails from four toes. I would never have been able to hold out if the deck had not been made of wood, which I regard as an essential piece of equipment in a life raft. Without it, I would have developed gangrene, or at the very least, serious arterial trouble. For the time being, my ailments were still localized, my blood pressure remained good, and I was still perspiring normally. In spite of that, I greeted with relief the victorious sun which appeared on the 16th, expecting it to cure the effects of the constant humidity which I had endured. I did not know that the sun was to cause even worse ordeals during the cruel 27 days which were to follow. The castaway must never give way to despair, and should always remember when things seem at their worst that something will turn up and his situation may be changed. But neither should he let himself become too hopeful. It never does to forget that however unbearable an ordeal may seem, there may be another to come which will efface the memory of the first. If a toothache becomes intolerable, it might almost seem a relief to exchange it for an earache. With a really bad pain in the ear, the memory of the toothache becomes a distinctly lesser evil. 
the best advice that I can give is that whether things go well or ill, the castaway must try to maintain a measure of detachment. The days of rain had been bad enough, but what followed, in spite of the rosy future the sun at first seemed to promise, was to seem much worse. The 16th of November was my 29th day at sea, and I had every reason for optimism. There had been a decline in my health, but at least the worst part of the journey was now behind me. Up till then, I had had to maintain a course across the wind, but now I was sailing directly before it. I had collected enough fresh water for about a month, and the fish which had accompanied me from the start still surrounded the boat. The old hands, those that I had succeeded in wounding during the first few days, had not forgotten their experience and remained out of reach. Every morning I saw them rise from the depths, give me a suspicious look and then take up their position on a parallel course. Their company became increasingly welcome, partly because they were old friends and even more because they encouraged other fish to join them. The newcomers arrived in shoals, duped by their more cunning relations and sported all around me, providing an endless supply of innocent victims. Certain specialists had advised me to install a small tank in the bottom of the boat in which to keep the fish I caught. The reader will by now appreciate how superfluous was such advice. My larder followed me wherever I went. Not only that, but my faithful dolphins chased unlimited flying fish in my direction, and I picked up five or ten every morning. They never landed in the dinghy during the day, presumably because they saw me and could avoid the obstacle, but I could watch them all the time, as there was never an interval of more than five minutes before a squadron or two took to the air. The ingenuity and skill with which the dolphins chased them after flushing a covey was a spectacle of which I never got tired. With wide open mouths they usually managed to be at the exact spot where the flying fish hit the water again. A few of the intended victims, probably taught by experience, changed direction in mid-air and by bouncing from one wave crest to another, managed to elude their pursuers. Once the storm was over, I carried out an underwater inspection of the dinghy with a secure lifeline round my waist. Almost all the repairs effected at Las Palmas had succumbed to the battering of the sea. The glue had not held, and strips of rubberized fabric fluttered down lamentably. A whole colony of Cirripedia, a type of barnacle, had affixed themselves along the seams. Of all the experts familiar with my type of boat, only Monsieur Debrutel, the manufacturer of the dinghy and a real specialist in everything that concerned it, had warned me, you cannot expect to avoid barnacles. The one detail of construction of the heretic which I considered a potential weakness was the seams which connected the sections of fabric. There was little likelihood of the floats bursting from internal pressure. Every seam had been covered with a safety band, but it was still possible for these tiny shellfish to penetrate underneath it, tearing it loose as they grew. I had already noticed at Tangier that even when the dinghy was moored in a deep bay, a dense submarine growth attached itself to the bottom, particularly along the seams. The main seams held the sternboard in position between the rubber bottom and the floats, and secured the floats to the rubber bottom. From Casablanca to the Canaries, the depth of the water and the speed at which I travelled arrested the growth of these marine parasites, but during the time I spent at Las Palmas, the bottom of the dinghy became covered with an absolute forest of seaweed and barnacles. After I'd scraped them off, I noticed with foreboding the little bumps under my safety bands where some of the organisms had penetrated, and I therefore stuck on a double layer. These were precisely the points 
where the fabric had given way from the effect of the storm. I could carry out no further repairs underwater, and had no option but to trust in the confidence which Monsieur de Brutel had in his boat, and climbed back in board without much difficulty. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.